pleased to welcome you all here, the people who have just arrived today. My name is Sylvia Boorstein, this is Sharon Salzberg, this is Joseph Goldstein. Many of us are old friends and know each other from practice, and some of us are meeting for the first time. So I'm really glad that you're here. I'd like to tell you that as you were arriving this afternoon, the people who just arrived, the people who have been here, who have been practicing for six days of meditation of well-wishing, and who ended up their practice of metta, of well-wishing, with uh, specifically sending groups of well-wishes to different groups of individuals, spent some period of time this afternoon sending well-wishing to the group of individuals who was arriving here this afternoon, so that uh, as you were driving here, or arriving here, or registering here, or unpacking here, the rest of the folks who have been here were making uh, good wishes for your arrival, for your safe arrival, and for uh, making good intentions for your experience here. I'd like to tell you that so that you'll know that the space has been made welcome for you. Sometimes when people arrive, especially when there's a group that's already here, and that group looks in silence, there's all kinds of uh, a sense of, um, sort of differentness or coming into a silent place, and these people are ahead of me and they've already started. And, so one of the things that I think may make you feel welcome and part of the group is that the group has internally welcomed you. So I'll just tell you about that so you know that. I thought about the fact that there might be uh, a way of thinking about there being um, three groups of people here, at least. A group of people who are starting contemplative practice, starting vipassana practice for the first time, and uh, a group who are restarting vipassana practice, who have practiced before, and then that third group of people who have been here, who we might think of as people who are changing their practice from metta to vipassana. And I want to really blur all those boundaries and say that there's really only one group of people here and we are all people who are continuing our practice together. Whether or not we have done formal practice, whether we've done formal vipassana practice or any metta practice, we are all of us continually in life and here in the process and in the practice of trying to wake up. So we are just all continuing from wherever we are to do 10 days together in that practice. There's a way in which I feel very strongly uh, especially about vipassana practice, which is really the practice of meeting each moment as it arrives with clarity and understanding and without resistance and with wise response, is really just the same as living life practice. We do it in a slightly different milieu here. We do it um, slower, perhaps, and quieter. But actually, Except for the form, the practice of vipassana is the practice of wise living. Later on in this little bit of time that we spend together tonight, I'll say some more things about the particular form in which we'll practice here, and especially for people who are new to practice. 
that will really answer some of your questions about it. But except for the form, which is more inward and quieter and contemplative and monastic, really, it's really a practice of meeting each moment of life with understanding, with clarity, with presence, with attention. In order to come to some understanding about it and some sort of peace. One way of understanding Vipassana practice is that it's through lack of understanding about what's essentially true about life that we act, uh, react to situations impulsively and without understanding and increase our difficulties and create struggling for ourselves. The word vipassana actually means clear seeing. And the understanding of the practice in the simplest terms is if we were to really see clearly the nature of experience, it's ephemeral quality that it comes and goes, it's really empty. If we were to see clearly that suffering really arises from attempts, always impossible attempts, to either grasp that experience, to hold on to it, which we can't do because of its ephemeral nature, or to ward it off because it's unpleasant. And it's really those attempts in the mind to struggle with our experience that really create suffering for ourselves. And it's in seeing clearly the truth of experience and the truth of suffering that really allows us to come to some sort of freedom. It's really quite a simple understanding and not a complicated practice. Life is actually so mysterious. And often I think because it's so unpredictable, really frightening. We spend a lot of time trying to hedge our bets or figure out what's the best way to live. I think that Scott Peck sold so many copies of his first book, The Road Less Traveled, only on the basis of the first sentence. Do you remember the first sentence? It says, life is difficult. And I think people read that while standing in the bookstore and immediately knew that he spoke the truth and took the book home. I don't even know if people all read. Hundreds of thousands of people bought that book. And I'm sure they read the first sentence and maybe a lot more of it. Actually, you might know he's recently published another book called Further Down the Road Less Traveled. And uh, the line I liked the best in that was uh, um, a conversation that he recounted having with a student or a patient of his who said in great dismay, Dr. Peck, I'm so confused, to which he responded, that's wonderful. And the person with some dismay, check that out, that's a strange response. And he said, no, that's wonderful, because if you're confused, you'll keep on seeking. So I was, thought that was a really inspiring line. Here we are, all of us, perhaps not very confused, but certainly all of us, all still seeking. Now, the, the, the fundamental teaching of Buddhism, that things change, in some ways is what creates the potential for struggling in the mind. Just as we get our life together, it all of a sudden shifts under us. Can't count on things staying. We fix it up, fix it up, fix it up, so it'll be a certain way, and then it isn't that way anymore. And we spend all this time 
planning so it'll be a certain way, and then it isn't. And we have to keep readjusting ourselves. And it isn't because we're doing things wrong. It isn't because other people more cleverly fix a life that is permanently satisfying. We're doing it right. What we're doing wrong, so to speak, is having a bit of a struggle with adjusting to the changing circumstances of life. And really what Vipassana practice allows us to do is see in a really immediate and direct way that the circumstances of life are always changing. That's the way of life. And then to be able in some way translate that immediate direct understanding into a relaxed and moment-to-moment wise and skillful way of relating to the changing circumstances of our life. interesting in our life. I think we're often trying to hold on to experience or push away experience or run away from experience that we're frightened will be too unpleasant or too sad or too anxiety-making. One of the things about coming to a retreat is there's no place to run. That here you are for 10 days and everything will arise in the course of the 10 days. I think actually, apart from uh, whatever momentary clarity of understanding we have, there's something about the very experience itself of doing ten days, of being with experiences difficult and pleasant and exhilarating and interesting and boring, and having the days just pass under you, which is sort of itself is a kind of prototype for understanding of everything passes no matter what. I think one of the, uh, the the things that I came to realize that was the, maybe the, the way I could most say what's been helpful to be about my practice, certainly not that I've come to the end of all suffering in my life. It's a wonderful vision. I hold it out as a possibility in this life. But that suffering has become much more manageable, much less frightening. I hope less suffering in my life, but that which is there is more manageable, and I'm not so frightened by it. That seems to me an enormous gift of practice. All kinds of things will happen in these 10 days. People used to um, ask me, what should I say to you? When uh, you go away on retreat, when you go away on a holiday, people say, have a good time. But uh, people don't know what's the correct salutation for people going away on a meditation retreat. So you could say, have a good time. Well, I don't know. Have a good time. Have an informative time or an enlightening time or an interesting time. People end up saying, have a time. (laughs) (laughs) And everybody here will. You know, lest I be conditioning some sort of anxiety in people who haven't done the practice before, might think you've come to the wrong place. It's not my intent. It's my absolute belief that this is a very clear and direct path to freedom and to fearlessness and to peacefulness and to lovingness. It's uncomplicated. 
What we'll do here is we'll just be present for our experience moment to moment as it changes. Those will be the instructions. We'll start tonight in a little while with a quite simple beginning instruction. And then as the 10 days go by, we'll elaborate the instructions. We'll work here together in the hall with um, um, increasingly um, developed instructions. And you'll have instructions first in groups and then in individual interviews. I think that being here and being in retreat and practicing works in three ways. One way that it works, I think, is just in hearing a view of what's true, listening to teachings. It's really the purpose of one of the purposes of the teachings, in addition to giving instructions for practice, is to be inspiring. And it's very inspiring to hear the truth. In the days of the Buddha, according to the stories of the early teachings, um, people would come to the Buddha and uh, render homage and pay respects and sit down. And the Buddha would give a discourse and he would tell about how things are, what's the nature of reality and truth. And as he spoke, masses of people would become fully enlightened. It's so inspiring to read those stories. I think about them because I don't think that happens so much these days. <laughs> but I love those stories. And uh, it will say in the end of those teachings, it'll say, and the Blessed One spoke the following words. And then all of the assembly was enlightened. How it usually phrases it, and their, tru- and their hearts through not clinging were liberated from taints. I love that. I think about, I tell that to you because I think about that frequently when I am in the position of hearing a Dharma talk. I sit down, no matter how many talks I've heard before and how many times before I have not become fully enlightened as a result of hearing one, I always hold out the possibility that there's an historical precedent for that. And I, I actually think that to myself. I say, you never know. And it conditions a kind of paying attention that I think is really good for me. I wake myself up, I really listen, I really focus. I I like to tell that to you. There is a precedent for being released, for realizing our inherent freedom just in hearing the truth. The other part of hearing the truth, um, as it's taught, is that certainly for me in the beginning days of my practice, short of being entirely released from my fears and confusions, and way short of really getting the instructions down in any way that I could use them, and way short of having developed any kind of malleability of mind or concentration, I felt better just from hearing the teachings. Again, perhaps it's like when we hear the truth, and it rings true, and we know this is a question that's dearest to my heart. There's something very soothing and very reassuring about it, so that even if I have not yet um, assimilated it into my system, that the truth exists and that people know it is so insp- was so inspiring to me.
here when I met um, these teachings for the first time, and I was about 40 years old by then, and concerned with all the kinds of existential anxieties that I think inevitably at one time or another in our life, if we're lucky, catch up with us, which I didn't feel people around me spoke about or knew about or acknowledged. Everybody else around me was pretending that life was really fine and not worrisome. And here, all of a sudden, I met people who were willing to say that life was very difficult and that there was a lot of suffering. And they looked fine about it. They even looked happy. And that was tremendously reassuring to me. I thought to myself, here are some people who look just like me, who have lives just like mine, who know what the truth is and are willing to name it, and are all right with it. So that's one way that the practice works. Another way that it works is just being here for these 10 days. It's a relatively protected environment. I mean, we're warm and we're safe in here and um, the food will show up on time. And uh, it's a really safe environment. And we'll take precepts in a moment that will really make an atmosphere of harmlessness here to increase the safety. But still, we've each brought our individual bodies, and we've each brought our stories. So we've brought our minds and our bodies, and they will, for each of us, provide a changing display of experiences, some difficult, some blissful, changing all the time. It's amazing, actually, when you think, here I sit in this lovely, warm monastery, it's quiet, it's away from all the ringing phones, all the newspapers, all the cares and hassles of daily life, it should be bliss. And right away, the internal story presents itself and starts to unfold, and everybody's in a different way. But everybody will make it through till the end of the 10 days. Everybody will deal with it one way or another. And I think in doing that, we discover just by the very doing it itself that we can, that it's all manageable, it's all workable. I had a friend who I told about my early practice because I was so excited about it, and I told him what, what I did, and I actually didn't have much sense of what you did with the mind, so I more or less told him the schedule, because that was the most heroic part of it, actually. And, uh, and he responded with the proper response to heroism. He said, I can't believe you sat alone with your mind for two weeks. <laughs> and in a sense, that kind of outward bound aspect of it. It's kind of an outward bound of the mind. But it, it actually um, uh, conditions a kind of uh, self-confidence. So it's wonderful to do an outward bound of the mind. I welcome you to it. And the third way in which this practice works, cumulatively and over time, not in my experience once and for all, is that one does have direct insights, direct understanding of the nature of experience, the nature of phenomena, that things do come and go, that they are constantly coming and going, that they are arising and passing with such moment-to-moment change that they're actually insubstantial, that experience is actually insubstantial. There's nothing graspable. 
and no one actually who grasps. And in some direct ways to have an understanding about the way that suffering in the mind is actually the response to the unclear, to not clearly seeing that, to attempts to grasp at what's essentially ungraspable. And that that clinging, conditioned clinging of the mind is really the source of suffering in life. There are all kinds of opportunities to see the arising of suffering and the falling away of suffering. So there are um, two hints, one explanation, and two helpful attitudes that I want to tell you. The two hints is that things change But our understanding changes, things change moment to moment, but our understanding changes slowly, over time. This is really a lifelong practice. Even though in the Buddha's time there were instant arhats, instant fully enlightened beings, for whatever reason that doesn't seem to happen so much now. One helpful explanation, I hope. This was a point of um, early instruction that was confusing for me a lot in the beginning. This is a practice of opening without discrimination to all aspects of one's experience, which really means all aspects of all body phenomena, all physical phenomena, and all mental phenomena. The entire range of experiences, body sensations, moods, emotions, thoughts, sounds, all of our experience, to be able to open to all of it without discriminating whatever comes up prominently in the awareness at any time and moment to moment, to open to it and not struggle with it. Actually, that's what mindfulness means. Sometimes people think it means awareness, and it's a little bit different from awareness, Awareness has to do with recognizing what's going on. Awareness coupled with allowing is what mindfulness is. Awareness that doesn't struggle with what's going on, that doesn't grasp onto it or push it away. Awareness that is open to, I think the best best word that I can find in English, and it's actually a made-up word, is grokking the experience. Feeling the experience, you know that word, it's from Heinlein, stranger in a strange land. It's feeling the experience with all of you, not being separate from the experience, and allowing it into your space of awareness without any flurry of the mind. It's the peaceful acceptance of experience moment to moment, acknowledging it, knowing it, and allowing it, including knowing whether its characteristics are pleasant or unpleasant, and allowing it anyway. That's really what mindfulness practice is. As we begin today, the first instruction, just a few minutes from now, will be sit in a relaxed and alert way, close your eyes, and bring the entire attention to the breath. And for many people, it sets up immediately attention in the mind about, why, if the instruction for this practice is to open to the entire range of activity, of experiences of the body, and just having heard this, why are we now going to use this whole effort to bring the attention to the breathing? 
as the one thing to pay attention to. It sounds like a paradox. It's not a paradox. The practice is to open to all experience as it arises. Being with the breath, and in fact, being with the sensations in the feet as we walk, is the warm-up practice, the preliminary practice. We start with that in order to allow the attention to focus, the mind to concentrate, for peacefulness and stability to be part of our experience, and then more and more, when we've established a kind of tranquility, a kind of ease, peacefulness in the moment, we will, over the course of the next days, open the range of attention to the whole wide phenomena. I tell that to you both because often there's questions in people's mind about a seeming dichotomy in instructions and the nature of the practice, and also because we'll talk a fair amount in the next few days about really trying to be with exclusively the breath And that seems paradoxical. So remember, being exclusively with the breath is in the service of being able to open fully to all experience. I think that's an important explanation. Here are the two attitudes that I think are helpful. Um, One of them is the attitude of patience. It has to do with what I was saying about the hint. Things will happen all of themselves. Really all you need to do is to be here with intention, which you already are, and do the schedule with sincerity, which I assume you will. The mind actually takes care of itself. All of the directions that we give and all of the instructions are actually in the service of helping the mind to do what's actually its natural inclination. It is absolutely natural for the mind to be settled and clear and alert. To be flurried and confused is an unnatural state of the mind. If we had enough time and could be here quietly for very long periods of time, I'm convinced that if we followed the schedule and sat and walked, concentration would deeper and awareness would clarify just of itself. All of the instructions are extra because we have a limited amount of time. But patience is a very helpful. Patience and sincerity in practice are very helpful. And the other, the other um, aspect that I think is just really helpful is to is the aspect of faith, and to find it in where whatever. In whatever place you find it, the counteraction to doubt, I think, as it comes up, especially for people who are new to practice. I remember my faith in my early practice coming from all kinds of unusual places. The fact that there were so many people there, and it was terribly, terribly hot in the summer. That seemed like such a weird thing to do in that terrible heat. And I thought to myself, if hundreds of people are doing this, it must be all right. With just a manufacturer of faith. I had a, an experience that was so uh, kind of fortuitous, serendipitous. In the middle of my first retreat, it's so mundane and minuscule as to be trivial. But I'll tell it to you because I want you to know that faith is found in all kinds of places if you look for it. You've met the managers of this retreat. 
some people who who are managing and people who are working in various capacities as crooks or whatever who take care of all the um, logistics of your being here and so in my first retreat I understood that yogis didn't talk but that managers could and they, they could talk to teachers about different problems that had come up and one day in the, at the end of a sitting and uh, at a time of considerable confusion for me, perhaps halfway through, a week into the retreat, I wasn't feeling well and my body hurt and I was confused and I was dismayed. And I got up to leave a sitting at the end, the bell had rung and I was walking out. And here came in one of the managers and was leaning over and talking to one of the teachers um, about some apparent problem that had come up. I don't know whether they'd run out of some supplies or some vegetables hadn't come. One of the many problems of running a retreat that could have come up. But I I could tell it was a problem and I could tell from the urgency of this person's tone of voice and the serious look that there was really an urgency of conveying whatever it was that was wrong. This person got all finished speaking to the teacher in these hushed but urgent tones. teacher was listening. And I went by just as he made his response, and he said, you know, I'm not into hassling. And I thought to myself, that's an attitude. I didn't know that, that in life you had that option, that you could say at any time, I'm not into hassling. I had the most hassleful mind that I could imagine. I hassled everything. I struggled with everything. I worried about everything. I fought with everything. The notion that there was a way to be that was peaceful, that I could become non-hassling, that that was a human option, gave me such a hit of faith in the whole practice. So it's a very trivial little story. A less trivial one, and one that I most sincerely hope doesn't happen to anyone here, was on the last night of the retreat, and I called my husband to say I was what plane I was coming home on the next day after we'd broken the silence. Before I made that phone call, if someone would have said, are you changed by this practice? I would have said, no, not very much. You know, I really love what these people say, but and my body doesn't hurt so much, and calm down a little bit, but nothing much has happened. And then I phoned home and um, inquired about my father, who lived near me and was a good friend of mine. and. Uh, was still quite young and uh, in good health, I thought, but had been feeling peaked before I left. And I said, how's my dad? And my husband said, well, I'm sorry to tell you, but he's been to the doctor and he has cancer. And um, I'm further sorry to tell you that it's not a treatable kind. And it was actually a moment of amazing revelation because I felt very badly. I was very sorry to hear that. But I did not feel blown out of the water. And I knew that at another time, at any other time in my life prior to that, that piece of information would have been incredibly shattering. And I didn't hear it without pain and without sadness. But I knew in some way that there is something that happens quite subtly that I hadn't recognized that softens the heart and mind that makes experience more manageable. So I'm sorry that that was my father's fate at that time, but 
in a way, I very much um, cherish the fact that I discovered that, he discovered that, and I heard that news just at that moment. Because in that moment, I think I knew that there was something for me very important in this practice, <coughs> as there is for all of us. So I welcome you here to this. I hope your experience is wonderful. If you'd like to stand up for a minute and stretch your legs before we sit down and formally begin. We begin a retreat traditionally, the formal part of practice, by reconnecting with what are called refuges and precepts. There are three refuges in Buddhist practice. The first is going for refuge to the Buddha. When I say the words or I hear the words, I take refuge in the Buddha. I think some about the historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, and about um, the person of the Buddha. But mostly I think to myself about the fact that for me, that person represents the potential that we each of us have to wake up and to be free and come to the end of suffering. So when I say to myself, or I hear someone say the words, I take refuge in the Buddha, or I go for refuge to the Buddha, it means for me, I take tremendous courage from the fact that freedom is ours, that the end of suffering is possible, and that the experience of the Buddha and the teaching of the Buddha and the practice that we have stays for me as an example of that possibility. When I say or I hear the words, I take refuge in the Dharma, traditionally Dharma has the meaning of uh, either the truth or what is. Sometimes it has the quite specific meaning of the teachings of the Buddha, the canon of scripture of his teachings. When I hear the words, I take refuge in the Dharma, I relate most closely to the fact that I take courage in the fact that there is a path already laid out for me, that there is a practice, that I don't have to reinvent the wheel, that we've all come together to do a practice that has been effective for 2,500 years, that people have been practicing continuously for 2,500 years. As a matter of fact, I'm always sure that when I say the refuges, or when I hear anyone else say the refuges, that at that very moment, on this planet, all over the place, people are saying those same refuges with me, that I'm actually joining an ongoing and no doubt continuous chorus of refuge chanting since the time of the Buddha. I think that it probably has not stopped for a moment. Somebody has taken up that chorus all over the world for 2,500 years, it's unbroken. And so when I say those words, I just add them to the ongoing chorus. 
in the time of the Buddha, taking refuge in the Sangha quite literally meant in the community of ordained nuns and ordained monks that had left their lives and become students of the Buddha. When I say the words, or I hear the words, I take refuge in the Sangha, I very much feel the group of people around me that has become, for me, in this instance, my Sangha, my support system. It's extraordinary to me that here we are, a hundred people in the room, and some of us know each other and some of us not, but we will be each other's support system for the next ten years. All of us contributing equally to holding up the energy in the room. So that by your silence, by your stillness, by the way you walk and go through the day, your presence will be supporting everyone else here. So we have become instant sangha for each other. Normally the precepts are recited, the refuges are recited, and then the precepts are recited right after that. Refuges are normally recited three times. Then the precepts are recited. And I'll tell you what they are, and then I'll say all of them together. And as I say them, you can relate to them with whatever understanding resonates in you to these ideas. There are five basic precepts that we take when we undertake formal practice. They're not essentially any different from the way that we live our lives the rest of the time. They're precepts for wise and skillful living. Some of them are a little different in a retreat setting. The first is I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. Sometimes it's hard to even think of an example where anybody would want or even have a living being to harm here. So I think more in the sense of the spirit of harm, harm, harmlessness goes without saying that we won't hurt each other. I think the spirit of harmlessness is the sense of being held by the group and cared for by the group. I specifically think of that precept as meaning I will be alert to the arising of aversion and the arising of an aggressive impulse in me at all times. And I won't let that reflect in my actions. I think that's what that precept means. The second precept is really an expression of I will be alert to the arising of greed and the desire to act on greed and I won't do it. The precept is I undertake the precept to abstain from taking that which is not given. It seems extra to say to a group of people who have come to this kind of a practice that we just leave everybody's stuff wherever it is. It's wonderful. There aren't so many places in the world where we can leave our stuff unattended and our rooms unlocked and Everything will be exactly where we leave, left it when we come back for it. It's really an extension or another facet of being in a harmless community. So extraordinary and so supportive. 
I undertake the precept to abstain from incorrect sexual conduct in the context of a life in the world. We would be able to have quite a discussion about uh, the various ways in which we sometimes express sexuality in a way that incorporates an aggressive impulse or an exploitive impulse and how to recognize that and how to be sure that our expressions of sexuality are neither aggressive nor exploitive. In the context of a retreat, we undertake the precept to not do any sexual activity. The fourth precept is, I undertake the precept to abstain from incorrect speech in the context of our lives in the world. It's a wonderful discussion because there's so many ways, especially for people skilled in verbal nuance, to use speech either in a way that's uh, aggressive or exploitive. The context of a retreat, it actually gets easier because we don't speak. We do speak to teachers in interviews. We speak to managers if there's any sorts of problems of housekeeping that come up. We speak in the hall when it's a question and answer time. But otherwise, we don't communicate with each other. We don't speak to each other. We don't write notes to each other. I'd really like to suggest that you not keep a journal because it really tends to create more and more discursive thought. I know that lots of people are very committed to their journal and keeping a record of their important insights. So don't take it on as, a, um, as an absolute rigidity if something extraordinary really presents itself to you. It's such a mind flurry not to write it down. It probably makes more sense to write it down briefly and let it be. But try not to write in a journal. Try not to read even wonderful inspirational literature. This is such an extraordinary opportunity in life just to be present for one's own experience moment to moment. We even tried to uh, keep what was called in Christian monastic communities custody of the eyes, which means just to keep one's private space. It doesn't mean to walk in a rigid way. It really means to not interact with too many people by looking at them doesn't mean to be unfriendly. We certainly know who's around us. It just means to give everyone the wonderful gift of their own space. It's a great gift. The last precept is the precept to abstain from intoxicants, any kinds of drugs, other than those you need for medical conditions, which you certainly find to use any kind of mind alterance. Our job here is to really facilitate the mind being as clear and alert as it possibly can be so that we can really see clearly our moment-to-moment experience. It makes enormous sense not to cloud it in any way. So I'll repeat those refuges and those precepts. And as you sit and you hear them, 
let your own experience of them resonate for you. Hear them and feel them in the way that really seems right for you. I take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Buddha. For the second time, I take refuge in the Dharma. For the second time, I take refuge in the Sangha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Buddha. For the third time, I take refuge in the Dharma. For the third time, I take refuge in the Sangha. I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. I undertake the precept to abstain from taking that which is not given. I undertake the precept to abstain from incorrect sexual conduct. I undertake the precept to abstain from incorrect speech. I undertake the precept to abstain from intoxicants that cloud the mind. Let your body be alert and relaxed. Have your posture be one in which you can be fairly still. Stillness of the body really supports the deepening of concentration. Find a way in which your body can relax into a posture that's alert. Helps to hold your head up straight, perhaps bring your shoulders back. Take some breaths in and out, some longer than normal breaths. Just allow yourself to relax into your body. One helpful way of relaxing into the silence and the spaciousness and beginning to wake up the awareness is just to listen very alertly to the silence and the space around us.
a way of being alert to the spaciousness and the silence that brings a kind of repose to the body. Maintaining that alert awareness around ourselves, feel the body sitting on the zafu, sitting on the chair. Feel the body. Even with your eyes closed, all kinds of kinesthetic feedback from the body, so that with eyes closed you know where your body is in space. The pressure of your bottom sitting on the chair or the zafu. Your feet, your legs. Feel your arms alongside of you. Your hands either holding each other or resting on your thighs, whichever is comfortable for you. Feel your whole body. Really myriad body sensations, physical sensations arising and passing away in every moment that give us feedback about where our body is. In the midst of all that variety of body sensations in all of the body, we can discern as we sit the sensation of the system of sensations, the set of sensations that make up the breath arising and passing away. If we sit quite still, there's no other pressing, strong body sensation present, the sensations of the breath will likely present themselves as the most obvious body sensations. You might feel them in your belly, the sense of arising and passing away. Just the sense of shifting pressures. Maybe your belly rising and falling. You can discern various pressures, just from pressure on your clothing here and there. The breath might present itself to you as a shifting set of sensations around the chest. Sensations of expansion and relaxing. Again, different pressures. Pressures against your clothing, the sides of your body against your underarms. Different shifting sets of pressures that let you know that breath is arising and passing away. You might feel the sensations of the breath 
around your nostrils. Perhaps there's a quivering of the nostrils as the breath comes in, and there's a pressure on your upper lip as the breath goes out. Everyone seems to experience the breath in one place or another with more clarity. So in these few minutes that we sit together quietly, feel the whole body. Wait for the breath to present itself to you as it will. And notice where it seems most prominent, most strong, most discernible in the belly, in the chest, and the nostrils. Where it presents itself to you most clearly is where your attention is resting. So try to rest with the awareness in that shifting set of sensations. can be quite relaxed as you bring the attention to rest in the breath. In the moment that you find that your attention seems with another aspect of your experience, thoughts, other sensations, See if you can, in that moment, be alert to the sensations of the breath and allow the attention to rest in them just a few minutes more. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit 
dharmaseed.org slash donate.